This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel, and we have issues at all three levels of government. In Ottawa yesterday, the Kielberger brothers with their lawyer in tow testified, and they accused politicians of destroying their charity for political reasons. Now, was the best defense a good offense in this case, or did they come off as entitled as ever? At Queen's Park, another flare-up involving the progressive conservatives' youngest and possibly most socially conservative MP, Sam Oosterhoff, and his involvement with a group that compares abortion to the Holocaust. Now, Dig Duck Ford successfully nip that one. Oosterhoff is a parliamentary secretary despite his tender age. Should he stay in that post? It's not the first time he's done things that are embarrassing, frankly. And remember the furor over cutting the number of Toronto City Council seats from uh, 47 to 25. The city's challenge to that is back in court, apparently for the final time at the Supreme Court. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, even the mayor admits that it's easier to get stuff done this way. I guess the question is, are people as well served or less well served than they were before the cut? We would also like to hear from you. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 744-740. And I'd like to welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations, and John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Okay, let us begin with uh, the Kielberger brothers. Uh, Bob, what did you make of their testimony Mm -hmm. yesterday? Uh, Entitled uh, would be a good word. I think you used it in your promo there. Uh, they kind of make me uncomfortable, I have to say. Um, and uh, they made it very clear that uh, this was all the government's fault. It's uh, all Charlie Angus's fault, an NDP MP. Uh, it's all Pierre Polyev's fault, a Conservative MP. They take no responsibility for skirting the rules on lobbying uh, for their complicated structure, which is designed to be non-transparent. Uh, for their lack of governance that they've had in place, um, for their fundraising mishaps. They take no responsibility for any of that. So um, I don't think they're winning friends and uh, moving public opinion in their in their direction. And uh, I didn't think it was a great ending for them yesterday. Karen, uh, uh, I think most people would agree with with uh, Bob's take on it. I mean, the one thing they agreed on, they say, that, you know, that case of the the plaque being removed uh, from a school in Africa, a plaque commemorating a donor's uh, deceased uh, little son, um, and it was apparently removed and changed several times. They said, oh, we have no idea how that happened, and it shouldn't have. Uh, so what do you think of it, and, and is, do you think there'll be any blowback on the charitable sector and charities like yours? Uh, yeah, I mean, let's start with, you know, these things happen. They, they don't actually happen. They, they, they shouldn't happen. <laughs> and, I mean, that kind of thing is not left to the decisions of those who, you know, work in Africa or host events. And so I, I think to Bob's point, it, it does it does speak to the way the charity was managed. And it was managed... Um, may, maybe not as thoughtfully as it needed to be. And so, and the repercussions of that have been very, very bad for the charity. And, uh, you know, personally speaking, there was a time when Variety didn't operate with all of its uh, governance structure that it needed, and it was a very bad time for this charity, and we learned hard lessons, but we were able to recover, not because we blamed someone else, but because we looked internally and realized that we needed to change the way we did business. 
And so I think it is doing themselves a disservice to blame, excuse me, the federal government for what happened to their charity. They did this, and a little bit of humility would go a long way. Wow. John? Well, yeah, you know, someone obviously um, gave them the advice uh, that, that they need they had nothing to lose so they can go hard. And, and, and as you mentioned, too, you know, the best defense is a strong offense, which I don't think worked and, and didn't look particularly good to them uh, into their into their charity. You know, for, for you know, just the contrast with when they first appeared uh, and they're answering questions the best that they can, this time around they were just being defiant, and, you know, and even asking, even asking Pierre Palda, an MP. Uh, questions uh, that he was trying, they were trying to get him to answer it, and it just it looked awful, and, and it just it didn't come across good for them. And but more importantly, though, <clears throat> they were able to not only uh, uh, anger the opposition, which I guess is is antagonistic relationship that they had, but they've also angered the Liberal Party, which uh, which quite frankly was surprising given the fact that the Liberal Party was was supportive of them uh, in, in the first initial run. But when they say you know that they never advised the Prime Minister or Mr. Marneau to recuse themselves or, or the parole parliament uh, or to involve the decisions to filibuster their campaign. That was a direct hit at the Prime Minister and his government. And for Francisco Sobera, who I think was one of the uh, Liberal MPs, yeah. um, to come back and basically say, you know, you, you, so it looks like everybody else is at fault but you guys, to Bob's point, I think was a huge hit for them because, you know, at some point the Liberals wanted to be supportive and, and, uh, and all that stuff. So I think the charity looked bad for themselves. The two of them continue to look bad. Um, and all in all, I'm just done with this, uh, with the We Charity and, and with this, this being another opportunity. I know that there's investigations still happening uh, and that there's issues that still have to be resolved. But if I don't see them on TV again for the next little while, I'll be a happy person. Well, <laughs> are they operating? They've shut down their operations here. Do, do they still have any operations, maybe in the United States? Uh, does anyone know? Well, I don't know. The problem with these guys is everything is murky. They say that they're selling their buildings, but the but the buildings aren't listed anywhere on MLS, um, and you know there's no evidence of any uh, transaction. You know they say that they're shutting down their foundation here, but it's still open and they're accepting money, um, you know, so on and so forth. So and they seem to parse every answer. So uh, so I think they're planning on doing that. They haven't done it yet, and they're still trying. I think they're still trying to figure out you know, what their exit strategy is and how they move forward. Well, and it's interesting. They showed up with their lawyer, Will McDowell, who I think is one of the uh, highest paid lawyers around. So they can't be that broke. Nobody well, wants yeah, to respond. I think that they've also, they've also engaged, um, I think, publicly Guy Journal uh, oh. as well, who, uh, who uh, I'm not sure is their official attorney, but their legal advisor and has been public. Uh, over the last you know weeks or so, leading up to the up to the committee hearings, in a sense that you know when they when when the Kilbergers first said no to the to the invitation to join the committee, uh, Guy Journal was dispatched to uh, to make some public statements regarding well you know there really shouldn't be this and there's conflict between RCMP investigations and whether the committee and then obviously ultimately they decided to do this uh, and they appeared it but you could just tell that they just did not want to be there. Uh, and quite frankly, didn't you know had had this attitude? They had nothing to lose, so they were going to attack everybody and and make everybody else at fault. Well, and there was another thing that you mentioned that uh, Guy Giorno, their lawyer, said they shouldn't be uh, they shouldn't be questioned on things that would come up in an R- in the RS- RCMP investigation. And then yesterday they said no, they're not under investigation. So murky. To Bob's point, yeah, exactly. That's and that's the thing, you know. Every every question that no matter who asked them, be it the liberal a liberal member or a, or a block member or, or an NDP or whoever, there was never a straight answer, and and you could just see that they were just trying to 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 weigh out the time uh, and and answer things that they thought were were not particularly answerable, and that again it speaks to that issue of credibility for them, and if they ever want to do anything again with, with the charity in Canada. I just think that they've left themselves a really bad uh, a bad uh, foundation to, uh, to try to build on or rebuild on. Okay, well, let us move on. So uh, the vaccine rollout is going a bit better. Uh, we heard yesterday from Doug Ford that, uh, that he wanted to renew Rick Hillier's contract. Rick Hillier said 
He's done his job. Mm-hmm. The rumblings that I've heard is that Hillier wasn't happy about dealing with the whole uh, bureaucracy of the health ministry. And uh, there are a lot of people who criticize him, saying that a lot of the problems in the rollout and the vaccines not going to most vulnerable first were, were on him. So uh, what do you make of that, John? Well, I'm just let me just say, too, I'm happy that my friend Bob uh, Richardson got got vaccinated. That's a, a tremendously good news, and it and it's proof that to me that the system is working and things are are moving along as they should. So, so, uh, and I'm happy for for Bob for that. Um, but but I, I you know look I I think that we've talked about it before in a sense that you know there was always issues with the the number of vaccines that the federal government had procured and and how fast and how how many of the vials were were sent to the provinces. Uh, and then the provinces were, were sort of, you know, then taking over the actual jabs and arms and making sure that the vaccines that they received were being were being dispensed. And, and so, there's, you know, I just don't like to put blame on anybody. I don't like to blame the federal government or the provincial government. I think that this is so new to everybody and, and, the, and the, the, the vaccines are so complicated by way of doses and storage and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the fact that we've now got the fourth uh, Johnson and Johnson approved and, and, and it's going to be out there soon. I think that people are starting to get vaccinated, which is great. I'm hearing stories all the time. I'm seeing it on social media. I'm getting calls from friends saying, Hey, I just got myself vaccinated. That's wonderful news. And that's all we can hope for is for the next number of months that as many people as possible, the vulnerable, the most vulnerable first and others just get vaccinated, and I think we'll all be uh, in a better place. Well, yeah, but that's not exactly the way it rolled out. Uh, We are still, like, in the 40s in the rollout, 41st, 44th. We were 50th last week, uh, so we're still not, not doing great. It seems to be starting to move. Uh, but here, you know, it was Rick Hillier saying speed over perfection. And, and suddenly, you know, uh, some hospital workers who, who didn't even have jobs facing the public were getting the shots before people in long-term care. There are still outbreaks in long-term care. Uh, apparently everybody who wants one has gotten a first shot, but not a second shot. Uh, you know, the deaths are way down. They're effective, Karen. But, uh, you know, what What do you think about the, or do you have any scoop on the departure of Rick Hillier? I don't have any scoop, um, but certainly I can appreciate, um, you know, why he, he, he chose to leave when he did, uh, in that, you know, he came into a job, was given an assignment, and, you know, came from a, a background where he had command and control and he, and he had a command and control structure. So, you know, and presumably that's why they brought him in is because it, there was this logistical rollout that needed to be managed with a lot of moving parts. And there was a sense that him with his background and experience could manage that rollout. Um, but again, he moved into a space that doesn't have a command and control culture in the way that he is used to. And so it's not surprising to me that he, he ran into resistance uh, with the uh, bureaucrats at, at public, at, in the health department because they have a different lens with which they, you know, operate themselves. And so, you know, trying to meld this command and control, um, this is the order I give, follow it, to, okay, but we need to consider this, that, and the other thing, and, you know, with, it, with a different lens of assessing risk, um, it, it would be a very, very difficult thing to manage under intense timelines under excruciating public scrutiny under you know political implications that you know could determine the next government and at some point the guy's like listen i I didn't sign up for all this you know (laughs) i wanted (laughs) to do a job i wanted to make sure people got vaccinated i've done what i can um now you know in fairness to him and to the to the next step of the process he's like there's probably better people than me that can take it to the next step okay uh bob congrats on your vaccine Yes, I'm, uh, I'm one of those who sort of snuck in. I'm, I'm uh, 59, but if you're born in 1961, uh, you can still uh, get vaccinated. So uh, my birthday's a couple months away, so I managed to sneak in under the, uh, un- under, under the rules. So I'm happy, uh, happy to have that done. I was just going to say, look, I agree with uh, basically what, what Karen uh, had to say. Uh, I think General Hillier's used to being a workhorse and is used to being the guy in charge and getting stuff done. He was set up here to be more of a show pony um, than, <laughs> yeah. uh, than a wolf horse. And I think that was that was a problem, and he didn't have that command and control function that I suspect he's used to as a, 
as a former general, and that was that. That's probably uh, problematic. I think what we need heading this vaccine uh, task force is uh, if they pick somebody else to do it, I would pick somebody like Michelle Manuel, who's the CEO of Trillium uh, Health Network. Uh, she's a former de- deputy minister. I think she was also a deputy at government services. She's been CEO of a hospital. Um, she knows and understands the province and public policy. You need somebody who's got that sort of a background. She'd probably hate me for suggesting this, by the way. But you need somebody like that who's uh, doing a great job at Trillium. Sector, if I could put it that way, and knows and understands the Ontario bureaucracy. I think uh, I think he was just sort of a fish out of water here, and, uh, and it wasn't uh, terribly effective. Uh, back to your vaccination, Bob. So you snuck in your 59. Uh, the, I mean, uh, I am on the record. I'm glad that NASI has reversed the guidance for the AstraZeneca vaccine. We're going to get more into that in, in the second half of the show audience. So I'm going to talk to doctors. So I'm just saying my, this is my opinion. Uh, but in the mean, the, their sense of timing and the effect of the timing on on the way people think about it, I, I think is bizarre. So they said that uh, they weren't going to allow people over sixty five to have it, just as uh, France and Germany reversed that guidance and said it's fine. There are millions of people in that age group in the UK who've received AstraZeneca. And now they are reversing it again, just as a lot of European countries are pausing because of this blood clot thing, which which also I I doubt is a thing. So just to speak to Bob, you got the vaccine. First of all, do you have any regrets that it's AstraZeneca? And uh, what do you think about the communication aspect of the way this guidance is coming out? Well, it's been kind of a bit all over the map from uh, communications. To be quite honest, I didn't think I was eligible. And then it, it took a friend of mine to say, you actually are eligible. You should sign up. So that, that's what happened in my case. And I was supposed to uh, be vaccinated yesterday. I ended up walking in off the street to shoppers on Friday at uh, Young and Bay because they were letting anybody walk in off the street who, you know, was eligible. And when I went in, I was the only person being vaccinated. So the whole process took me five minutes. Went wow. down the street in uh, uh, on the Danforth, there were hundreds of people in line. So I think the distribution probably uh, probably needs a, a, a little work. And it's very confusing uh, for folks to know whether you are eligible, when, where, all those things like that. We need a much, much better and clearer uh, communication uh, rollout. I happen to be one of the lucky people in this case, but there were a lot of people who are frustrated out there, and I completely understand where they're coming from. And and But again, because of the, the whole controversy over AstraZeneca, do you have any issue with having I, I have no them? regrets on AstraZeneca. I read up a little bit on it, too, as well. I think as of this morning... Um, uh, a lot of uh, what uh, has been said in the last 24 hours has been refuted. Um, so uh, I, I think we should go full steam ahead. The key critical thing for us to do at this point is to get people vaccinated. The quicker we can be moving on that, the better, the less politics we have involved mm-hmm. at this point the better. Well, you know, and it, it's interesting that you said you just got into a line, and I know that other pharmacies did that, you know, they would make sure that you're eligible, because they didn't have the systems in place uh, for a good booking system. So that's you, Bob, at the age of 59. And I know I, I talked about uh, my delightful uh, tailor and dry cleaner who works every day, who's 87. And boy, it was a job to get him signed up, because trying to go through the various booking systems and the crashing and, and the whatnot, and that's with help. So, um, yeah, and I know that, uh, for instance, and, and I hope Humber River doesn't get mad to me, they've been taking people over 80 just showing up with the right ID and everything, uh, again, to avoid booking hassles. Well, there were for sure slots missed where I was. Um, I was literally the only one there getting the vaccine for the 20 or 25 minutes that I was there. So, you know, there should have been a lineup of 20 or 30 people and there should have been a steady flow. So I think it is pretty uneven out there. 
hopefully, look, I think you give everybody a bit of a break. Hopefully they will sort that out. It sounds like the portal was generally successful yesterday when it was launched. There were some problems, but it sounds like stuff that they can sort out. So hopefully, you know, by next week we should be, uh, as they say, cooking with gas. So we're, we're getting there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. boy, um, time flies. Uh, Karen, so we have to talk about the municipal lawsuit at the Supreme <laughs> Court. Um, yeah. Talk about, you know, what is like closing the barn doors after the horses have escaped. So yeah. uh, I, it was a huge issue uh, in its day. Before the last municipal election, the province reduced the number of seats on Toronto City Council from 47 to 25. Uh, they say that's unconstitutional. It did happen after a lot of people decided to run. That um, wasn't nice. But uh, wh- what do you think about this lawsuit? Uh, and what do you think about council with 25 people? Yeah, so, I mean, we'll start with a lawsuit in that, uh, you know, it's one of those things. I think the Supreme Court will rule in the province's favor because the fundamental question before the court is, constitutionally, did the province have the authority and the power um, to do what it did? And I think we all can agree the answer is yes. Um, you know, then there's the question of just because you can do it, should you do it? And, and there things get a little bit more murky. Um, but that's not the court to decide. That's the politics. And so, you know, I think the court will make the decision that it makes, and then people will assess whether or not they thought the government made the right choice, um, given that they can do lots of things and some things they should do and some things they shouldn't. Um, you know, if you ask John Tory, would he want to go back to a council of, you know, 45 or whatever, he'd probably say no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you ask councillors, did you think you had a stronger relationship with your community when you had a smaller number of constituents, they probably would say yes. Um, you know, ultimately, it's one of those things. I don't think we're going back. Uh, I think that the mayor likes the structure, is not going to fight for a change. Um, the province, the decisions made, they, even if they even if they should lose the Supreme Court, I, I, which I don't think they will, I, I don't think there's any compelling reason for them to want to change again. And so I, I think this is one of these things that the city has to fight it because they felt they have to fight it. But ultimately, they're not going to be successful. Uh, John? Yeah, I'm in the same. I'm in the same boat with with Karen on this. I I, I don't think it's never a good thing or a good story for more politicians, uh, or a case to be made for more politicians versus less. And and I think that the, the premier had every right to be able to do it as it as it as it was proven. And I and you know whether or not the timing of it was good or bad or what have you. I think the fact that they've now been been functioning as as a smaller, more tighter council is good news for not only. Uh, the city of Toronto, uh, taxpayers and, and voters alike, because I think that it's forced, um, the politicians and city councillors to be a little bit more on point with respect to what they need to do. Uh, the debates at city hall are far less, um, uh, well, they're just, they're shorter and tighter than they were before. It would, it would make my head spin when you sat there in the gallery and watched, uh, you know, the full 44 council, uh, the way it was before debate an issue. And it, it no uh, longer and- makes your head spin? <laughs> well, it was just—it was incredible. Like, it just—you sat there, and, and and everybody had it to hear, had to hear her voice, and they had five minutes to to rebut, and then we we rebut, and all this kind of thing. So it just made it—it it just makes it more sense to be able to do this. And if you can do that, and rep, representatives at the federal and provincial level have the same number of constituents as city as the city councils, if they can do it, then they can do it as well. So I just think it's not going to go back. I think it's it's working well. Um, and um, I can't imagine the, the Supreme Court. I would never want to guess what the Supreme Court is going to rule, but I just can't imagine it would ever go back to the full complement as it was before. And, and Bob, did we mention that it's $25 million bucks cheaper to run this way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I, 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 I am with, uh, I'm with uh, Karen and John on this one. I don't think it's changing. Uh, I think 25 has been far more uh, efficient and better. It's been difficult, I think, for certain councillors who have huge amount of development going on in their ward. I think I think that's been a bit of a problem, but overall, it's been uh, it's been good. I don't think I got to uh, the 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 Sam Oosterhof issue, uh, John. So this is uh, the youngest MPP. Uh, he's been the cause of embarrassment before by being at an unmasked party of 40 people. Uh, now he has been linked to a group, a campus group that compares abortion to the Holocaust. Uh, he's he's a parliamentary secretary. 
uh, and people are questioning, should he still be the premier sort of uh, uh, repudiated that link? But is that is that good enough? Well, you know, listen, Sam is um, an impressive young guy who, uh, you know, at 19 got elected in a, in a very tough riding. Uh, I give him credit for that. He's always he's also been very open in public about the fact that he's a pro-life uh, advocate and uh, and, and that's, you know, so he's never hidden that. But I think that, you know, when, when you're with an association or talking to an association that has, that compares anything to the Holocaust, it's just a point. And, uh, and I think the premier made, made note of that saying, look, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't judge people's, you know, personal beliefs or, or moral beliefs, but he said, you know, any link to anything, uh, involving the Holocaust is just not on and, and there shouldn't be accepted, uh, and shouldn't be tolerated. So, whether or not you know the, the, the Sam is going to continue to speak at this thing or not, or what's going to happen, I don't know. But I know that the, the premier repudiated any any linkage to, to the Holocaust, and and I think uh, I think Sam should do the same. Uh, Bob, I am going to give you the last word. Should he be removed from his parliamentary secretary's slot? He's a, he's been problematic before. Yeah, I think he's a loose cannon, uh, and I think there's immaturity here that uh, is. Uh, you know, uh, too bad. And I think uh, a little bit of uh, time on the backbench to uh, think about this wouldn't be bad for Mr. Oosterhoff and it wouldn't be bad for the government. Okay. Uh, You know what, Karen, do you agree or not agree before we wrap up? I agree. I have nothing to add. Okay. Thank you so much to our crack strategy panel, Bob Richardson, Karen Stintz, and John Capobianco. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Libby. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we have Dr. Samir Sinha, who is the leading geriatrician. Uh, He's with Sinai Health, and we're going to check in with him on all the various developments on the COVID front when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have a lot of big news on the vaccine front today, starting with NACI, NACI's reversal on the AstraZeneca vaccine, now saying that it should be used on people over the age of 65. This comes as a growing number of European countries are pausing their use of the vaccine because of reports of a small number of blood clots. Meanwhile, the province's science table has joined the Ontario Hospital Association in declaring that we are in the midst of a third wave. What does this mean for our elders? We're also watching the rollout for people over 80. There were a a few glitches yesterday as the province launched its booking website. Overall, I'd say it went reasonably well, but more important, let's get Dr. Samir Sinha's opinion. He joins me now. Welcome, Dr. Sinha. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm doing okay. Well, how would you rate yesterday's rollout? I think overall it went uh, reasonably well. I think uh, I think people were just frustrated that they had to wait so long to actually get this this long anticipated website and hotline running. But you know, overall, I think that while some people reported glitches and and there were some some issues, I think the ministry said that they worked through those. I mean, I found my own glitch on Friday when it when the basic URL wasn't even working. Uh, so uh, either way, I think the ministry has been very responsive. And the good news is, I think it was something where 90,000 appointments were made, first yep. and second appointments. Um, and that's really good. It tells us that, you know, people are signing up um, and that while the system could be a bit better, um, it, you know, it's working and it's getting people their opportunity to get a shot of hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, l- let's turn to uh, the AstraZeneca decision out today. What is your take on that? No, I think this is. I think this is a completely, you know, expected situation where uh, people have to remember that when Health Canada first approved the AstraZeneca vaccination, you know, they approved it on the basis that it was safe in people of all ages um, above the age of eighteen. So that there was never any questions about this vaccine safety from all the data that we had already. The key was for Health Canada. They said that they understood that with some what we call non-clinical trial data, some what we call real-world data, 
that it was being used quite effectively in older people in the UK. They just weren't part of a study. NASI, when they made their decision, they were just looking at the original trial evidence. And the sad thing is in many trials that are done, uh, clinical trials around vaccines, they often don't include a lot of older people. And that was a limitation of the AstraZeneca trial. They didn't have enough older people to say definitively how effective is it in them compared to younger people. I think what we're seeing overall now is that in many countries around the world where it's been used for older people, that indeed it actually is showing the same level of benefit in that it's basically not causing uh, anybody to be hospitalized or die. And while it's been unfortunate that we've heard um, some concerns around you know, blood clots, for example, and some complications related to the vaccine, the key is that for all the scientific reviews that are being done by the World Health Organization and everything, you know, they're saying that 30 reported cases of blood clots out of 5 million people who've gotten this vaccine so far, um, that's actually less than what you'd actually normally expect um, just in general from a population. So, so it, the key is when you hear something, the, the question immediately is, is this because of the vaccine or is this just something that would have happened by coincidence? And right now, there doesn't seem to be any clear evidence to say that the vaccine itself is not safe, um, is, is, is dangerous. And that's why I'm glad that we now have another opportunity for people to be able to get access to another vaccine that we know will prevent hospitalizations and death um, in people of all ages above the age of 18. Um, I, I, the only thing I question about them is the communication, which I think is probably confusing people. And I think there are people who don't want that particular vaccine. And, and even with this decision, they seem to be saying that Pfizer and Moderna should be prioritized for older people. Do you agree with that? Well, I think this is what, um, you know, I think I believe what's coming out from NASI today uh, is that uh, they're saying that, you know, when you actually have multiple vaccinations available, when you have three vaccines that are all effective in, in older adults, that, you know, still the, the ones that seem to be the most effective, you know, appear to be the Pfizer Moderna vaccines. But remember, most effective um, means that, uh, that they, they all still will prevent people from going into hospital and and dying. So so the key is is that at what level um, are you seeking a higher level of perfection when they're all doing exactly what we want them to do in people of all ages. So so this is the challenge when you when you're dealing, you know, people don't usually pay attention to vaccine information, you know, on an annual basis for example, but I think everybody is so keen to make sure that they get a vaccine and they're so um, informed right now that I think people are looking at percentage uh, rates of efficacy. They're, they're, they're hearing reports from different countries, how different countries are doing this. And with so much information out there, it's easy to start mistrusting the process or, or, or not, um, not appreciating when, when messages are shifting or change. So you're telling your patients, bottom line, take the AstraZeneca if it's offered to you. Am I right? I'm just saying, you know, take any vaccine that, that, that is being offered to you. We're not going to offer a vaccine that has not been demonstrated to be safe and effective um, in the population we're targeting. So, for example, uh, we know that I think the Pfizer vaccine has been approved for people older than 16, but the Moderna has not been approved for people, um, um, uh, but only for people 18 and older. So, for example, right now, if you're a person 16 to 18, for example, and that's going to be a long time before it's your turn. Um, for those, we would only offer the Moderna. For older people, they now have three options, and that's a quicker method for which they can get an extra level of protection. So, again, our advice, all of our advice, I think we're all united on as scientists and clinicians in Canada, is simply saying, you know, whatever opportunity you get, um, you know, I, there's no benefit to say, is it the Moderna or is it the Pfizer? Is it the AstraZeneca? You'll only be offered a vaccine that is safe and effective for you. Um, and anything that you're offered is going to be good. Uh, we have just heard from the province's science advisory table, and they are joining the Ontario Hospital Association in saying we are in a third wave of COVID. So uh, you deal with our elders. What does that mean for older people? And first of all, do you, do you agree with that designation? 
Absolutely. I mean, it's been very apparent uh, already is that uh, that we were already, you know, heading into a third wave, principally because the the original uh, uh, form of the virus, if, if you will, you know, after the lockdowns that we had in Ontario, for example, were starting to subside greatly. And so that's why we started seeing the, the case counts decreasing dramatically. Now, what people have been seeing is that things have been kind of holding steady around the thousand mark for a while. And now all of a sudden, it's starting to rise again. And it's largely rising because it's that more um, contagious uh, or easily transmissible variant, uh, the one found originally in the United Kingdom, for example, and less so the other ones, that is much more easily uh, passed from people to people. It's more contagious, and it's, there's new evidence saying that it's potentially more deadly. So that's now becoming the dominant one, and and we're worried that we might see cases as high as you know six to 8,000 cases a day. And for our older adults in particular, I'm concerned because if you're living in a long-term care or a retirement home, you likely have been vaccinated. But we have to remember that well over 3 million older Ontarians do not actually live in a long-term care or retirement home. And the majority of them have not been vaccinated yet. So this is where my advice is, is that yes, we do have another you know wave upon us. Um, we want people to be heightened about the things they can do to protect themselves and others from COVID, like wearing a mask, uh, washing their hands, physically distancing, being more mindful of that right now. Um, if you are eligible to get a vaccine, please book and get yourself um, a spot to get vaccinated as soon as possible, because the, the biggest concern is that we know already is 96% of the people who died from COVID so far in our province have been those who are 16 older. And I wish we could have gotten more of them vaccinated sooner before this third wave was upon us. Yeah, and I guess people have to, uh, like, you've got to hold on before hugging your grandkids. You have to hold on that much longer. So, you know, so again, today, I think it's good news is that we actually have the AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, that can be made available so that there's now a third option available to older people in Ontario, for example. Uh, and that might help a more of our older people um, get vaccinated that much sooner. So I think, again, my, my advice is, is that these vaccines are safe. They're incredibly effective. All of them have been found to be 100% effective at preventing people from ending up in hospital uh, and and ending up dead. That's that's a miracle of science. So literally, get your hands on whatever one you can get your hands on. Uh, before we go quickly, you are working on a plan to get vaccines to people who are housebound, right? Absolutely. So in the city of Toronto right now, um, I can just say that uh, for those people who can't get out of their homes, uh, who often have to receive care only in their homes, uh, we, we've been keeping an eye on how do we make sure that for those individuals, we can get a vaccine to them. So there's a lot of great work that's happening, a huge collaborations between the University Health Network, Toronto Paramedic Services, our local uh, home care providers, primary care providers who are working on a good strategy. I'm happy to say we've been doing some successful pilots to kind of work out the cold chain, the delivery models, all these things, because this is hugely resource intensive. But um, the good news is, is that we're going to be making sure that those who are homebound in the city of Toronto will absolutely not be left behind if they want a vaccine at home. Okay, uh, we will wait, and maybe get a little update on that in the coming days. Thank absolutely. Thank you very much, Dr. Samir Sinha. We're going to take another break, people, and I will be taking your calls, and we will be talking to uh, two more epidemiologists uh, again about uh, the decision about the AstraZeneca vaccine and also uh, about this business about the science table saying we're in a third wave and what does that mean for us. We'll have all of that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As we've been saying, Ontario's science table now agrees that we are in the midst of a third wave of COVID-19. This as the province's chief medical officer as, of health, as well as the city's medical officer of health, hesitated to identify our situation 
that way. Also today, uh, the uh, national body on on advising for immunization said AstraZeneca is fine for people over 65. And there are a lot of people who are confused about the guidance in that particular vaccine. We know that Europe has paused, most of Europe anyway, has paused using that vaccine because of reports of blood clots, even though World Health Organization and others says that there would be a lot more problems if this was related to vaccination. So let us get right to it. Uh, we've got Dr. Raywat Dionandan, who is an epidemiologist and associate professor in uh, the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. Hello, doctors. How are you? Hello. Good, thank you. Okay, let us start with Dr. Dionandin. Uh, first, a reaction to uh, the new information on the AstraZeneca vaccine. Oh, this was a long time coming. I mean, uh, it's, the real-life data has been pointing to high effectiveness amongst the elderly for some time. I'm a little shocked that NASI had that first recommendation to not use it amongst the elderly. The data had been there for a while. It looks like they were slow to, to read it. So I'm happy that they've expanded the age groups for it. Okay, yes. I mean, uh, it was surprising in the first go-around that they restricted it while other countries were opening it up to older age groups, uh, and now they are releasing it for people over 65 as as other countries are pausing it. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, do you have an opinion on that? Um, My only question is, uh, you know, I'm not sure the body concerns itself with communication. Yeah, unfortunately, there's two separate issues that have kind of overlapped and led to this issue with AstraZeneca. The first, as was mentioned, was the age issue, which many countries initially reversed. And the second now is this thrombosis question. So what was observed in, a, in Europe was that uh, as a handful of people who developed clots after receiving the vaccine. However, at this point, the data does not suggest that this is actually a causal link, that the vaccine caused people to have the, the clots. So still, it's still approved and recommended for elderly people to receive in Canada, and that, hence the, the recommendation. Okay, just, just a small point for both of you. People who are 65 might object to being called elderly. Sorry, uh, apologies. Okay, I'm going to take a question from Daryl in Toronto. You have a question about the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. Yes, uh, you're saying that uh, the blood clotting issue is just coincidental to it. So it just causes me to wonder, if that's the case, why did we not hear about, let's say, the blood clotting issue with the Moderna or the Pfizer when it came out? And is there any data to go back and look at to see? Uh, who wants to take that? I, I mean, this is Dr. Dean, and I'll take a shot at it. Different countries have different reporting procedures and, and standards. It's just that a signal came out of uh, some hospitals where 30 people reported having blood clots. We have to remember that these vaccines are being rolled out in a largely older population and to some extent uh, an immunocompromised or fragile population. A number of medically adverse things are going to happen to that population anyway. It's just that now we're looking at them more closely because they're getting a vaccine. So that's why the, uh, the coincidences will occur. The, the trick to, that we have to do here is look at the, the rate of occurrence of these things in everybody else and compare them. So blood clots apparently occur about 0.02%, 0.07% of the population, typically. And in this vaccination group, it's 0.0006%. That's why we're pretty confident that's probably not a causal relationship. But to answer your question directly, like I said, different countries have different monitoring procedures and standards, and uh, these things will occur. Okay, Daryl, thanks for your call. And one thing I wanted to bring up uh, is that I was reading about an increase in blood clots before uh, the AstraZeneca was even being distributed. And I saw studies on an increase because of COVID in people who had to be hospitalized with COVID. But also, I read one article about an increase in blood clots because People are a lot more sedentary now. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, uh, have you seen anything like that? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. So specifically with COVID, absolutely your risk of getting a clot as a result of having COVID is more than 300 times higher than the baseline risk, or in other words, the risk associated with getting a vaccine. So 
Obviously, if you get COVID, it's much more worse from the clotting perspective. As for the general trend before COVID about whether clotting was increased, there, there may be a variety of explanations. Uh, sedentary behavior may be one of them, but there's a variety of other comorbidities that are now more common among the population. And as the population ages, those kinds of complications become more likely. Plus, there's certain medications that may also predispose people to having other issues which lead to clotting. That may have been an observation even before the pandemic. Okay, yeah, but in the pandemic, you know, people are staying at home, probably exercising less, sitting more, all of that. Uh, Dr. Dianandin? Yeah, definitely. Um, This past year is going to create a number of chronic disease issues that we're going to be detecting in the next few months. Who knows what people have been doing? We've been overeating, watching too much TV, um, not getting into appropriate relationships or getting into inappropriate relationships. Who knows what the toll has been on our mental health and our physical health. But yes, the sedentary lifestyle is not a good thing. Remember, other things that cause blood clots are, are flying. Right? So those who have uh, multiple uh, and lengthy uh, airplane trips tend to have a higher incidence of deep vein thrombosis. That's not a disincentive for many people to take flights. So neither should this be a disincentive to take this vaccine. The, uh, the risk is very, very low. Okay. I'm going to take a call from Gail in Richmond Hill. Hello, Gail. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. My question is a little more general. Um, My husband and I are both over 65. He's 73. I'm 67. We both have diabetes, and I have ARVC, which I'm sure the doctors know what that means. I'm confused as to when and and how long I have to wait before I'm included in the uh, vaccine um, phases. Okay. I'm going to try to answer that before we throw it to the doctors. Uh, So... I think uh, you would both be the way things stand now in phase two. The province is still trying to get to people who are over 80, and it would go by age and I think uh, some other conditions. But uh, judging by your ages, your husband would go first and you would go next. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's now another option if uh, you can get the AstraZeneca. So maybe you'd go a little faster. But uh, you're in phase two, which supposedly starts in April. And until I see it starting, uh, it hasn't started. Uh, do either of the doctors want to add to that? Um, I'll take a shot at it first. I think you are correct. And the ARVC, I don't think, uh, puts you in a higher risk category, depending upon medication that you're under. So you're not particularly immunocompromised. So, yeah, I think Olivia is correct on that. Okay, Gail, thanks for that. Thank you very much. I enjoy your show. Thank you very much. So uh, we have a few minutes left. Now, uh, we just heard from the science advisory table. They say, yes, we are in a third wave. Uh, What does that mean? Because restrictions have been lifted and, uh, you know, it's sort of getting spring-like. And we have a couple of big holidays coming up where I know people were hoping to see their families, Dr. Vaisman. Yeah, it, uh, it's very unfortunate that we are seeing a rise of cases and it's going to coincide with these holidays. I think the important message for the public is that we're not quite out of this yet. It's going to take a little while longer for the case counts to come down. We don't know where this will peak yet, but as vaccinations rise, then we hope that we won't see the same level. And the other important thing for people to recognize is that the, the number of deaths we're going to see associated with this rise won't be the same as we had seen in the past, we hope at least, primarily because of vaccination. So at least this time, we hope that even if there are rising cases, there won't be the same concordant rise in deaths with vaccination being so common now. Well, uh, so common. I mean, first of all, it's 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 two weeks before the vaccination kicks in. I mean, uh, Dr. Dionandon, do you agree that we're in a third wave? And do you think it, oh. it will be, in fact, less virulent than the first two? I think we're absolutely in a third way for a number of reasons. The science table has said so, that data suggested, and also we're trailing Europe. And Europe saw their third wave start a couple of weeks ago. And I do tend to agree that the death toll might not be as dire because those most likely to die are long-term care residents and retirement home residents have been vaccinated. And now we're making great strides into vaccinating the community-dwelling elderly as well, but not as quickly as we should be. So some people will die, unfortunately. Um, more challenging is the potential... Uh, threat to our healthcare system. Our ICU capacity is dwindling. Our acute beds are being filled up very, very quickly. And it looks like the largest proportion of people that are being hospitalized are those aged 40 to 79. 
and that's going to continue to be the case. So uh, as noted, we don't know where this is going to peak. This is the final legs of this disease, and we have to get through this crisis until we start seeing it in daylight. I guess I'd like to end with a question that might be more political than medical. I mean, you know, I'm not sure that, you know, we have uh, mayors and and other officials, you know, they're clamoring for restrictions to be eased. Uh, Is is there a special danger if we do that? And, And do you think we should be actually even doing more than we are doing? We're here in Toronto, Dr. Vaseman, we're in a gray zone, but it's it's not the same as the lockdown last spring, I can tell you that. That's right. Over time, people kind of don't as, don't adhere as much to the restrictions as they were, and the third wave will be even harder. I think the other key piece of information that we're finding out now is about the fact that the, the variants of concern, of course, are driving this wave, and we know now that there's a higher risk of death associated with the variants of concern. So we can't be easing off yet we might need to go back to the same levels we were before. We, we hope that's not the case. The next two weeks or so are going to be very telling whether that's necessary. So even if case numbers don't quite go up as high, the fact that this variant is potentially more deadly will will be an issue and as a result of the, the hospitalizations. And so we might need to think very carefully whether we're going backwards, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Dionandin, what are you telling people and uh, what does it mean if uh, the variant is, is not just more contagious but more deadly? It, it's almost a whole new pandemic in some ways. Mm-hmm. And if we let this new variant, particularly B117, the UK variant, become dominant, then we're in a whole new crisis. Uh, our mitigation tools, like uh, the extent to which we're wearing masks and, and having limits on gatherings, might not be enough to contain it. Our only hope there is rapid vaccination. So as I like to to phrase this and to uh, contextualize it, we're in a society-level marshmallow test. Remember the marshmallow test from the psych class? Give a kid a marshmallow and say, I'll give you two marshmallows if we can wait 30 minutes before eating this one. If we can wait a couple more months before eating our marshmallows, we get all the marshmallows. And all the marshmallows means an open society. So if we can restrain ourselves from socializing for two, three more months, let the vaccine do its job and prevent the spread of the new variants, then we have a chance of getting normal much faster. Okay, uh, on that note, and uh, anticipating no marshmallows for lunch, let's wrap <laughs> things up. Thank you so much, Dr. Ray Dionenden and Dr. Alon Vaisman. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.